0: Hello and welcome to Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. My name is Katherine Troyer, and I am so excited that I have the privilege of once again talking to Tony Tresca. Hey there! This is a podcast where the horrifically nerdy meets the terrifyingly academic, as we explore that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is for better or worse, giving us nightmares.
1: And we are so excited to have you join us today for our conversation about 2023's Nonfiction book, Monsters A Fan's Dilemma by Claire Dieter.
0: This is our first nonfiction book. Woot, woot. <laughs> I know, terribly exciting. And I told you before we started recording, but I feel like it should be on public record. I'm so sorry that it took me so long. You were like, please read this book. And I was like, I'll get to it someday. And then, of course, the best way to get either of us to read a book is to make it be one of our podcast books. It's a, it's a surefire it way
1: to get us to, to guarantee that we will read. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, pr- pretty much. Because the conversations we have are always so good. And the whole time I was reading the book, I was thinking to myself, First, I'm so sorry that I made you wait so long to be able to have this conversation. And also that like, it's just, it is such a good book. It's so thought provoking. And no matter who you are, if you like any art, this book will resonate with you because guaranteed you have encountered at least one artist in your life where you begin to have questions about whether or not you should appreciate their art because something about them as a human or maybe something in the text itself makes your tummy feel rumbly. So yeah. Tony, if you were to give like a brief summary, knowing it's a little bit different this time, what would you say is the, what is this book about?
1: It's, I guess it's fundamentally about this question of can you separate the art from the artist and why is that a question that we care so much about and why does it occupy so much space within our cultural conversation within the zeitgeist i mean you don't have to go far without running into some like think piece on cancel culture about why it's either the best or the worst thing in the world we've kind of she mentions explicitly kind of a rundown of like this heightening of uh, during the me too era where these issues that have been around forever she says they're not like new things that are happening but the only difference is now that people kind of care <laughs> kind of is yeah. kind of like is a key word uh, throughout. Is that there's just more attention being placed on this. However, uh, I think one of the things that she really powerfully argues is that perhaps by insisting on this label of monster and this us versus them, perhaps it's still giving um, these people a lot of power and allowing them to like really control the story and place themselves at the center of these narratives. And so she kind of runs down uh, through these different kind of figures uh, for everybody from like Roman Polanski, Michael Jackson, J.K. Rowling to like some to like Sylvia Platt, Raymond Carter, Miles Davis, Joni Mitchell. So you really run the gambit in terms of some of the artists and genres and what their kind of output is and also what their perceived societal crimes are. You have everything from like child rape to abandoning your child. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: it really is uh kind of an interesting discussion about the malleability of the word monster and who we place it on in society.
0: And I typically think that it is important to to not label humans as monsters because it removes what I think is a fundamental truth, one that that Dieter gets at, which is that humans are monsters, right? Like that we don't have folks that are exceptional and therefore they are monsters we have folks that are humans doing human things um, and she even has a whole chapter de- dedicated to this where she says actually maybe the most monstrous thing is is that it's not extraordinary it is truly just ordinary and that's in her chapter uh, talking specifically about lolita and the fact that this whole narrative of like oh my gosh isn't humpert humbert just such an exceptional gentleman he clearly thinks he is in the novel and she says well actually Nobokov makes it very clear he's not special. He's perfectly ordinary. And that is the most fundamentally disturbing thing. So I actually, you know, when I started reading it, I was, I was prepared to have a little bit of a problem with her use of the word monstrous. But it became yeah. so clear that that's not actually, she was using it exactly in the way I think we, we should be sitting with this word.
1: Yeah, that's the, one of the reasons I really wanted to talk about this book with you specifically, is we've had so many conversations on and off the podcast about like our own personal, definitions of monsters and Dieter is really clear to establish pretty early on her own definition and she challenges it throughout but if I could just read uh, from chapter Thank two the, how she starts this is her chapter on uh, Michael Jackson she says I called these men monsters and so did the rest of the world but what did the word actually mean there were these things I liked about the word it falls out male testicular old world it's a hairy word and it has teeth it's a word that means something something that upsets you." The dictionary has it as something terrifying, something huge, something successful, a box office monster. Monster took on a new meaning for me after I read Jilly Offit's Monster Department of Speculation and referring to a passage called Art Monster. The passage came to be shared among female writers and artists of acquaintance. My plan was never to get married. I was going to be an art monster instead. Women almost never become art monsters because art monsters only concern themselves with art, never mundane things. And then she kind of goes on to, she kind of says the word monster was seemingly more and more complicated. And yet at the same time, it seemed too simple, too easy. And that's really when she begins to push back and kind of challenge it. But she yes. sets the stage with the things she likes about it. She provides this interesting wrinkle in this complication, this term of art monster. I term I was not familiar with. Have no, you, me were you familiar with it? No, I, I a Fascinating heard it. concept of this like idea that the greatest in quotes artists just completely devote themselves so fully to their work that they block everyone out people places morals
0: <laughs> right and what's interesting and, and what complicates in beautiful ways her use of the word monstrous that passage you just read and we've talked about this before in this podcast but it is where that word monster comes from so it comes from monstrum which is derived from a Latin word that I can't pronounce because I never took Latin. But that Latin word means to warn, to remind, or to instruct. And so it referred to like an omen, right? It was, it was something that was a harbinger. It was letting us know of things to come. And that is inherent in the definition she's providing because she is talking about like that idea of an art monster is simultaneously something that should warn us, right? We should be afraid of he or she who, Primarily he who is art monster, but we should also and we do also see it as a instruction of what we could achieve right if we if we were but in a position to do so, and she really wrestles with the fact that you know perhaps on the other side of the word genius is is not someone who's not a genius, I realize there's a word for that but but it's monster right that that it's a two sided coin and and they're related in really intriguing ways,
1: yeah. She, reading again, kind of referencing, this is on page 84 in her chapter on the genius. The contemporary ideal of a genius is a two-headed figure, both master and servant. He presents himself as a master. That's the first thing you notice about him. The genius dominates and controls his environment and the resources at his disposal, whether that resource is paint or words or people. And then she kind of also goes on to, uh, she gives a lot of some examples of this um, film directors bossing around their armies, Kanye West's My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, uh, a couple of things like that. But then she also describes this other face that a genius has, a servant. A servant to what, she asks? Well, and I read again here, to his own genius. His genius is a force that overtakes him, and he is powerless before it and he must serve its demands. He's visited by a force greater than himself, something even more powerful than a muse. This is the job of the modern genius, to create circumstances that are conductive to his free recipient of the energies that might rise in him or descend upon him. So there's a
0: class that I know of that happens at a university, and we'll just kind of leave it vague there, that's on the creative genius. And I think this is a class that happens at many a university, but this course has traditionally really struggled because there was a version of it where it was unironic. It was, let us study the great geniuses of our time, and one of those geniuses was Hemingway. Now, the course underwent a huge amount of revision because most of the people teaching that course were not white men. Or if they mm. were white men, they were not white men who identified as the type of, of men who are often allowed to be privileged to be geniuses. There were a lot of women teaching that class, a lot of people of color, a lot of queer folk. And so they began to say, well, maybe, maybe we're doing this disservice to, to the students. And they reimagined very thoughtfully what that might mean to understand what the creative genius is. And I've watched this course evolve over the, the time duration of like five or six years. But importantly enough, Hemingway is still taught. Yeah. And I think that- Fascinating. In some ways, it makes perfect sense, because if we're going off of, and I don't think this class has the luxury of diving this deeply into the issue, but it's not just the idea that someone might be a genius. This class does deserve to have a conversation about what we allow geniuses to accomplish. And in that respect, Hemingway should stay in the course, because yeah. he is a perfect example, as is Picasso, as is all the people that she talks about in that chapter on genius, a sort of perfect example of folks that we have allowed to get away with it and we've built it into this adorable narrative, right? It's like, this is actually part of what makes them special is that they get to be ridiculous and over the top. And you were talking about the fact that this would have been a perfect place for her to really dig more deeply into auteur theory, which she says is not really a theory. She has this like brief reference to Tarantino. I would have liked to have seen this more because- this is something that I think is worth further discussion. I agree.
1: Yeah, she has that brief nod to the Uma Thurman, Quentin um, Tarantino, I, I altercation that occurred um, on the Kill Bill set. I, I that's maybe not the right word to occur but he continued. He asked her, he put her in these situations. Uh, we mm-hmm. was asking her to perform these stunts that she was did not feel prepared for, and she ended up getting hurt. But kept moving on because that's just what you do on a film set and I thought it would have been a fascinating place to kind of dive into there's plenty of other auteurs just like casually off the pod uh right before we started recording I know you mentioned both Hitchcock uh as Mm -hmm. well as Stanley Kubrick uh by name as two figure prominent figures within the horror world uh which we both which we obviously come from this is a horror podcast um So we thought that those figures would have been really interesting, but there's myriad of others. uh,
0: Yes. Or like a modern
1: auteur, like Sam Levinson, who created the Euphoria, as well as that. Or Darren
0: Aronofsky.
1: Or Darren Aronofsky. Yeah, there's all sorts of modern auteurs that could have been dived into, uh, in addition to these kind of more classic.
0: And you had asked me who I would have wanted to include in in this. And I'm going to, touch back on several of them throughout but one of the reasons that Stanley Kubrick comes to mind is that it is hard to be in the horror wor- world as a scholar and as a fan and not acknowledge or have feelings about Kubrick's version of The Shining and it is a beautiful aesthetically beautiful film but every time I teach it I face an additional issue so not only do I face the concern of of being a fan not only do I face the the issue of being a consumer, but I take very seriously for undergraduate audiences, my responsibility to them that yes, they are adults, but they are in my care intellectually. And it is their job to push themselves further. I think once they get into grad school, it's much less of my responsibility, but especially if I have first years, it is, they're still figuring out how to take autonomy and they are relying on me to help them find that path. And I have to think very carefully about whether or not I feel comfortable every time showing The Shining. Because not only does it is it a film that literally caused the destruction of Shelley Duvall, because Kubrick was such a monster to her, in a true, I think, sense of that word, but it's also a text that has no problems using the N-word. And you can't tell me that word is needed, because it's certainly not, although King himself has not always had the the best representation of, of Black characters. He often has had simplified and or magical Black characters. So he's leaned into some problematic tropes himself. He doesn't use the N word and the shining to the best of my recollection, but Kubrick felt the need to kind of push that in there. And when I show this text to my students, I find myself asking, is it okay, right? Is it okay to keep this text alive just because it's a beautiful text and because Kubrick is clearly a master of what he does, whatever that thing might be. So I found myself really wrestling with that. And, and so I think that's why I wanted her to go deeper into this yeah. section about auteur, into this section, because part of what's interesting about auteur that she hints at but doesn't get to is that often those are not just the folks that we say are, are geniuses, but they're the folks that we say changed forever the landscape of art of in that genre in that medium and she talks a little bit about that with picasso with picasso but i I do think i wanted to know like what do you do with how do you have a course for example and skip a seminal text skip a a seminal and of course that word itself is so gross um author how do you make that decision right and so that's what I found myself wrestling with in that particular chapter—is not just as a fan, but as a scholar and as someone who teaches. How am I supposed? What am I supposed to do with that? It's a really good question, and I—I I think
1: that's one that Dieter wrestles with herself uh, in the book. She—I was a little unsure about the kind of memoir-y feel to it, the yes. kind of mixture of criticism, um, but also tying in her personal life story at first. However, I think she particularly as it goes on and she kind of gets to some of her own personal issues that she has um, with struggles with alcoholism and ties that into this discussion later on. It, it, re- it really is poignant. I think it was actually a really, really, I, I don't know if I could have handled it without having this guidance of a fan, someone who actually does genuinely care about the art form of all of these that yes. she's discussing as well as the legacy, the complicated legacies of these people. I, I don't, she mentions it a little bit in the start about how she's a film critic. She started a film critic yes. herself. She's very much of that world, a big lover of it. And I, I ran across her work, uh, not from her writing, actually I heard her on two oh. podcasts. First, okay. um, I'll shout out here, The Gray Area with Sean Illing. Uh, she has a great conversation about when you, it's called When You Can't Separate Art from the Artist. And she also hopped on Today Explained, also by Art, to talk about uh, Hannah Gatsby's exhibit, the Matic Picasso, uh, mm. that was popping up uh, in New York. And she gave a really interesting kind of conversation about Picasso in that one as well. Mm. But in both in, in these podcasts, uh, particularly the uh, on the time on the gray area, she kind of dives into these are questions that she gets asked all the time. She gets letters from people being like how do i engage with this people writing into her columns when she writes about things from these work and so i just thought that it's like these are questions that not only you are interested in these are these are i think just these are the questions of
0: our time and particularly with with cancel culture which i i want to circle back to cuz i think that's worth mentioning in context of all this but i yeah. i want to emphasize what i what you said that i resonated with so completely and that is i think she was so clever to begin with her chapter on Roman Polanski, because she says, I love his movies. They've changed me. They're incredibly profound. And then she says, but here's where I'm wrestling with it. And so from the start, there's there's a phrase she says where she said, what I was hoping to be able to do was to write a memoir of the audience. And then she says, so what would that look like? And then of course it becomes about her. And the other thing I thought that was, like you said, a very brave and very sophisticated move that I'm not sure I could have pulled off, is she she's using the word we and then she stops herself and says actually when we use the word we all we're really meaning is is i but i just don't feel comfortable not having it just be me and i thought that was just fantastic because again as a scholar we're actually told to remove uh the the first person altogether but that's also a defense move, right because when i write an article I am telling you my thoughts on it. I've just now removed the I think from it. And so this ways, the ways in which we use language to protect ourselves, either by using a collective I, a collective first person or no first person is just, I had never thought about it in the ways that she encouraged me to think about it. And that wasn't even her main point, which like, yeah. how good of a writer do you have to be? to have all of these profound thoughts and then these like sprinklings of other ones where you're like just as a throwaway that's also not a throwaway and it just she haunted me in terms of what she kept asking me to re-examine.
1: yeah i mean she certainly does not let us writers off the hook easily. i love her. no. her chapter nine am i a monster is like I, it's a it's soul bearing for her, but also anyone who's ever been, who's ever published, written, been any in type of any of these circles. I mean, I definitely resonated with me. I was like a couple lines. Yeah, I was gonna say that, you, you do a couple
0: I, reviews I, I, I a couple, every so often. I do a couple of
1: these <laughs> reviews every now and then. The line where she like is like, if you sit in the if the crowd long enough, you will let your life slip away from you. That's a
0: thing to keep yeah. in mind.
1: You know, uh, yeah, she's like, what is it? Is it? It's monstrous to hide behind. Idea of hiding behind these words and like just or i her discussion of just like yeah objectivity is like something a concept that she doesn't seem to have a lot of patience for yes i think she's right it's kind of it's too simplistic just like our word monster is too simplistic the objectivity is too simplistic in that sense so she doesn't let us off the hook easy
0: (laughs) she does not and while a part of me wanted to have her wrestle with on my behalf, because that's what she was doing. Right, she was offering to do some heavy lifting for us, so that then we didn't have to spend months feeling uncomfortable. We could just spend a few hours feeling uncomfortable reading it. But there was a part of me that wanted her to dive more deeply into cancel culture, and there's a part of me that is glad she didn't because she was saying the same thing, right? Like, in fact, she has a, a line where she says, and I I read it on Kindle, so I, I don't have mine highlighted as I as I want it to be but she has a section where she sort of talks about the fact that like maybe maybe it's okay that that for we decide to cancel some folks and not others that there are certain people that we say this stain is too great and it ruins the tapestry and there are others that we say you know what I'm okay with this stain and I remember very distinctly I met someone once that I was a little It was one of those conversations where like halfway through you realize that you have to start schooling your face in a way you didn't know you were going to have to do at the beginning of the conversation. (sighs) We we were just like talking about, I think we started talking about horror and things we like. And suddenly this person told me that they had a spreadsheet where they kept track of every single instance where someone had been potentially canceled. And then noted all of the reasons for why this person might have been cancelled. Any evidence that might have actually made it so that it wasn't a true example of, like, the real version of he said, she said. The verdict, in what ways they should be cancelled. I mean, it was this huge, and and I, I found myself making this face that I was like, oh, I don't know how to actually. I didn't know how to respond because that felt, first, very overwhelming. What?
1: Was this, like... Deep? I I'm this was overwhelmed. Just her personal hobby. So yeah. This is just like a thing that this person did for fun. It wasn't like yes. keeping tally or it, it was just like a. No, they're so it, interested in the idea of canceling.
0: I think based on and this is again I I we didn't have a ton more conversations than this because I realized that that she and I just were not probably going to vibe uh, because her level of intensity, which is well deserved, uh, was not going to be my level of intensity about this. But my impression was is that. There was an element of her doing it to also make sure that she was safe, right? That she Mm. knew who and who was not allowable. Now, maybe I'm wrong uh, in that. And if this person just happens to stumble on this podcast, which I doubt, but, you know, I'd be happy to have that clarified for me. But that was, it seems to me that it would be hard to not have it serve that purpose, to have it be this real way in which you can, and that's what she was doing. She was quantifying it. She was taking what is objectively a quality-based thing and making it a quantity-based thing. And I think she would enjoy, I think it'd be helpful for her to read this book.
1: Yeah, there's this line in there with the author in that same chapter. She's like talking to a male friend and he's like, I... I was a woman I would be filled with like righteous anger like every second of every day I see my daughter doing it and I feel like that's right I don't know how to help her no solutions but that's the way to be and you're just like oh that is (laughs) and
0: that quote was in reference to him first saying I don't give my family the time that I should. That's
1: right. You're right. That's so he said, I don't give correct.
0: my family the time that they should. I am not available. I am my own art monster. And then he said, and my daughter has every right to be upset about it. I too would be filled with righteous anger, but there was nowhere in there where he said, so I'm going to change. Right. So I'm going to make a difference. That was just clearly not something that he was very invested in at all, which, you know, is a thing. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, like, what do you do with it?
1: And I don't, I don't know, I don't know what you do with it. And I, I think it's a, it's a really open question. And it's not as easy as just being like, I I really have another section I really thought was fascinating was her highlighting Stephen Fry's um, kind of response to his, uh, his love of Wagner, but his like, Oh, he's got a little touch of anti-Semitism, which just like ruins the whole thing. And yes. he, he, like, I love how she's like sets this up. I don't mean to make light of Stephen or anything. He was brave to like talk about these complicated feelings before this was a thing we were all talking about and go on record. But that idea is she calls out is like a little bit wrong. Cause like another, he goes on to be like, I think if I could just have a conversation with him today, I could explain to him why it's just rational to not be uh anti it's you wouldn't be you wouldn't be anti-semic today i could just talk to him and it's like this critique of this liberal idea of progress and constantly moving forward and that you can reach this kind of yes. perfect kind of world and thing i i don't know but as yeah. long
0: as our world is burning which it is literally and figuratively as long as we continue to need To have these revolutionary, quote, revolutionary moments where we acknowledge just how many people are victimized every day. Could any of us really say we wouldn't, we would have been the people who would have not been whatever in that time, right? We would not have owned slaves. We would not have been anti-Semitic. We wouldn't we would not have turned have our back on women. the Jews. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. exactly, and yet, unless you are doing that today, because we're not that much better, and I thought that was a really important point, this this idea of this sort of liberalist belief that we have gotten better. And of course, there were studies that, when Obama was president, where where people were saying, oh yeah, we're not racist anymore to the nation, clearly. Mm. And it was like, what an intriguing idea that you have introduced into the world that's very, very false. And of course, by setting everything when she does, uh in, in america's political landscape of both trump becoming president and the me too movement yes. which are not happening outside of uh each other uh you know she's saying like can we actually say that wagner who clearly said i know what the alternative argument is yes. it's just wrong
1: it's like, like know, liberal bedazzlement yes, um he was yes. like anybody who just thinks about it, it i'm just like quoting him he's like really open about his beliefs yeah. he's not like he's not this is not something he just like casually like was like no. I don't i don't i don't like jews a little bit no this guy's the worst he's like actively yeah. believes they're inferior but it's not like this little thing about them and it's not like unfortunately it's not like those views are not still around today and i think that she later in that same chapter she's like that's why the access hollywood tape was so shocking to us as a society, not because we don't all deep down know that these things are still happening, but because that it could happen so blazingly and openly, and that we would still then elect this guy to the highest position of power in the world. Yes. It hasn't changed that much.
0: It hasn't. And I think what was lovely about using Wagner as an example is that there are so many other folks that it's it's easier to cast blame on they just didn't know better, right? And that is a very flimsy excuse always, but because no one ever knows better. But like, again, he, he, like you said, he's not casually dabbling. He's like, after having done extensive research onto why the other group is wrong, let me tell you why I continue to be anti Semitic. And yeah. it's another, you know, it also is a good example because I think about Nobel. I can never remember his first name. I want to say it's Alfred, but I don't know. But the, the, as in the Nobel Peace Prize. And of course he invented TNT. He meant it for a very specific reason. It quickly became a tool of of war and destruction. And he was devastated. I think Wagner would have been like, huzzah, are you serious that my music gets to be used for by Hitler? Like how amazing. Like, I don't think he would have been offended. And I realized that I need to know more about Winifred Wagner. Like what a trip she was. Like, I didn't know, did you know about her?
1: no i had no idea <laughs> about this outspoken like family member
0: yeah who's like i loved it when hitler came to visit it was just the best wolfie and i just had such a good time and i'm like what is happening and this was this was in her 80s so this was decades recent, after yeah like when recent, it was really yeah. clearer that that she shouldn't have um and so again i think that what's what's important there is that we're not getting better
1: we're not getting better these feelings aren't going away and like just because you're, you it also gets this idea just because like some people are uncomfortable with these things, you are going to have to grapple with this idea that this is never going to be a problem to some people. This is never going to cross their mind. This isn't, they're never going to think twice when Michael Jackson comes on the radio. Whereas like, I don't know. Anytime I hear Michael Jackson, I at least have, I'm like thinking about the documentary now, at least a little bit. I don't want to. She says, I I don't really want to be having these thoughts, but it's kind of hard not to.
0: Yeah. So I was telling you that I know someone who Michael Jackson was in their top, probably three artists after watching Finding Neverland. She cut him out completely. I think we, I think maybe technically she still owns the CDs because she hasn't gotten around to throwing them away. But the only exception she will occasionally make for is sometimes thriller, and and that is with a like a just a great sense of discomfort. And because I watched that firsthand, and I've watched the mourning that has happened because it's not just the music of Michael Jackson. And she talks about this. It's also that memory of listening to Michael Jackson. So she talks about, you know, sitting in the diner and how suddenly it's not just the music that's tainted, it's that experience in that diner that might potentially be ruined. And then she says, and then there's the additional complication of, but we seem to be awfully okay before that documentary with the fact that he himself was clearly a victim of monsters. Like we were Mm -hmm. super okay with that. Uh, It's just when he himself became a monster that we suddenly sort of drew our line in the sand. And that, I think he was a really good example of of just the grayness of it and the what are you supposed to do particularly because art and literature and film you usually have to go to those to experience but music penetrates often without our consent our world on a pretty daily basis
1: and, and that's why i think the other example that really haunted me and from this book that was and it haunted me because it was super powerful and I didn't know about it before is where she ends, which is yes. another musical figure, uh, the complicated legacy of, of Miles Davis and his like deeply was, just like, yeah,
0: violence, violent, if violent there some...
1: and a neglectful, abusive man who is short tempered despite producing some of the most lovely music ever composed. And she opens her chapter, uh, chapter 13, The Beloveds, about Miles Davis with this quote. And so we come back around to what to do with these monstrous people. emotion, subjectivity, forgiveness, empathy, institutional change, making room for silent voices, acknowledgement that the work is altered. All of these things matter. But so does one more thing, beauty. And that is where she spends the final chapter. And I think that gets to that idea of it's like, it's hard when you're like this thing that is beautiful. Or the and beauty is so subjective, as she lays out in this chapter, goes on to talk about. You get to make your. That's what's so good about it is you get. That's so good and so complicated about it is that you get to make your own definition of what's beautiful and what is beautiful to you. No guarantee will be beautiful to somebody else. And so then to have go on this journey where this thing that you find beautiful gets shattered, tainted, broken. Just you look at it in a different way. It it complicates the simple like dualistic way that you look at the world and that is a feeling that is not simply resolved and she doesn't resolve it simply yes i don't think there's any way to uh, but because
0: she says if beauty is subjective then so too is is ugliness and so what some of us may consider to be that stain that we can't abide for others just becomes something that either we can look past or maybe for a select few becomes part of the fabric itself um, so that mm-hmm. person I mentioned, Miles Davis, is probably in her top ten artists. I'm not sure she knows that he was to quote Dieter uh, an erstwhile pimp. I was I was struck by that phrase because I was like, "What does that mean?" I don't know, but I also know that that might not be that might not be her line, right? That 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 might not be the thing that she's willing to see as quite as ugly to cut him out of her world uh, in the way that that she has made that clear line in the sand um, and not her in this case but for a lot of us right what we deem as being the thing which is too ugly it has to do with with our own intersectional identities and and those things that that we feel are our sins worth not forgiving and this is when she goes back to to Novikov and and good for her for having read lolita a second time for having yeah. asked herself could i have read it wrong or could i have read it in a limited way as a 13 year old and then being like yes absolutely because i was 13. uh yeah. but she talks had- about the fact
1: yeah We've talked about Lolita a couple times on the podcast before in reference to other things. Yes. Uh, Both, but both of us haven't read Lolita. have not. In part.
0: I haven't watched it either. No, I I haven't either. And it was in part because I was afraid that it was going to just make me feel so icky, which it's supposed to, but it was going to make me feel icky for the wrong reasons. I was very convinced, but again, without having the textual evidence myself by Dieter's reading, I wanted to see it as, as this text as her talking about there's a couple of things right whether or not this text is actually brilliant because it is reminding us that monsters exist in the world every day but then she also has this part where she talks about you know like there's no evidence in Nabokov's life that he did any of these things and then she says you know what is the difference between action versus um emotion versus thought which she makes some she makes some bold claims there about whether or not you know it's what is okay. Right. And, and, and this is very reminiscent. It's actually the opposite of the Bible verse, right. Which says that if you even have the thought, it is the the equivalent of committing the sin. Uh, and that's why, you know, there's so much of like, forgive me, father, if I have sinned, I have these thoughts, these impure thoughts, and that's enough. Uh, And so it's it's very in opposition to what I was raised uh, to believe as a, as a Christian, not a Catholic, but a Christian, nevertheless, but also, you know, no child was harmed in the, the making of Nabokov's life. So no. and I, I, she gets to this idea, she's like, is it
1: monstrous just because he talks about the thing that like we watch like old men do all the time? Like, is it just is it more monstrous to call it out and draw attention to it? Or is is it more monstrous that we all ignore it as a society? Like we were talking about before. I was like, yeah, I was like, I, I, when I read that, I immediately just thought about Jerry Seinfeld. And and I didn't know what
0: you were referring to.
1: And I was referring to this time when kind of height of his career, he just, he could have had anybody in the world. He decided to date a high schooler publicly.
0: And, and it's not, he's (laughs) not like the exception to the rule. The comedian Dane Cook, who has made a sort of life of being that bro. He's 51. His wife of six years is 24. And when you hear when he says they started dating, it's it's clearly when she was about 16 again. You know, so and then there's then there's just all of the jokes that are like about people that are just known for that right like leonardo dicaprio darren aronofsky and and people that sometimes it's it's just an age gap but at least they're a consenting adult um and sometimes it's like they're not even close to approaching being a consenting adult but how many can we name i i bet if you and i sat down we could have come up with a list pretty fast of at least 15 men that have done this
1: recently yeah Unfortunately, I was like, I, I almost instinctually just hopped in and just started yeah. dropping names because it's so easy, which is
0: which is sad. Part of I realized so, she's getting which to. is what
1: she's so yeah, yeah, it's so sad. But it's the part of it's the it's the core of the book. It's like it happens so often.
0: And her discussion of of this component of thought versus deed resonated with me too as a horror scholar, horror reader, watcher, but also as someone who someday would love to to be a horror creator but just i just struggle because i have imposterism but that's a separate creature and that is the number of times that that i have been told directly or indirectly that there must be something wrong dot 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 and it could be with so and so it could be with so and so for creating so and so for reading but there's such a like what must be wrong with you that you're on page dismembering bodies often vulnerable bodies again and again and again and there are so many examples of, like, like as we're working our way through the Friday the 13th franchise, although not all of the directors or writers have necessarily, if we looked in their biographies, have huge, rich lives of just abusing people, although maybe they do, certainly their texts are about destroying female bodies again and again, punishing female bodies over and over again. And yeah. so this question resonated with me, too, of, like... When is it that, like, how do we, how do we wrestle with that component too the fact that some texts are going places that maybe a good person wouldn't want to go, whatever that means. And Stephen King, of course, right, is, is one of the big ones. And, you know, he talks about the fact that like, people always ask him, like, what was wrong with you? And, you know, he said sometimes when he's truly in his storytelling mode, he'll be like, yeah, you know, my dad walked out on me. So I guess I have trauma. But other times he's like, nothing. I just have stories to tell. And yeah. what's interesting, what I I thought about him a lot in the chapters talking about is particularly Miles Davis and, and alcoholism and the Alcohol, past, capital yeah. P, because he was, you know, King was massively addicted to, I think, everything you could be addicted to. There's no way he was a good parent or a good spouse at that time. He's hinted at it. His kids and wife have hinted at it. No one has explicitly wrote a tell-all because in part, I think he overcame that. But like, does that mean that we should only read his books? that he wrote after he became sober after he became a quote good person or do we keep reading one of my favorite books of all time which is the shining which i'm not sure he could have written if he hadn't known firsthand what it was like to be consumed that way
1: yeah i I thought that was a really she ties that idea in really fascinatingly with like raymond carver as well and her own personal like battles with alcoholism too which is again maybe a subcore of the book too honestly is like this idea she's clearly wrestling with this idea of like do you only get forgiven like are you only like when how do you get forgiveness if you do do these things like we will make mistakes like she's pretty honest I, i'm honestly probably more honest than most of us are about the yes. mistakes she's made and how that's like and so i think if we <laughs> the label of monsters is too simple for like a situation like that and she clearly worked through it so did raymond carver and there's arguments on both sides If like. And I thought that was interesting, too, if the work got better or worse after the alcoholism, because there's this other idea tied in there that like you can, it's like that spark. It's that thing that gives you life. It's that that monstrous thing that gives you that genius to create. Yes. Uh, And you kind of do it's you give it you trade that up in order to be good, to be forgiven. Can you be if you're if there's this idea, if it's permanently tainted, if that's how if the world really is that black and white and. I don't know. These are clearly unsettled questions. And I just really applaud her for like ask, being brave enough to share and also at raising these questions that I've been thinking about. I read this book in July. I reread it recently. I listened to her podcasts again. It's, been, I, it's haunted my mind. I've not been able to quite get this book out of my head. And I guess that's my dilemma.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because we have to ask ourselves, is there a to refer again to her imagery, stain, to go to a more religious phrase, sin, that is what is or is there an unpardonable one, right? And an unforgivable one and an unerasable one. I know growing up, I was super afraid that I would accidentally commit the unpardonable sin because I heard about it all the time at church, but it was just like, don't do it. And I was like, oh no, but I don't completely understand what it is. What if I accidentally commit it without my knowledge and somehow then can't, undo it but i didn't i didn't know i was doing it in the first place and all of that is sort of inherent in her discussion that there are things we do casually because we can't craft and revise everything we do every minute of the day and then there's the things that we committed to at one time that we're like yeah i didn't know as much as i know now i wasn't as good of a thinker as i am now and then there's just the things that we do that we know even in the moment are equivalent of drinking that are bad um and so should win right like what is that line and for her, I think there is clearly, and this under, is understandable as a as a mother, particularly, a lot of that line has to do with children.
1: I was about to. I think that's kind of maybe the last major thing I really wanted to talk about is she spends most of the book talking about the male monster. Rightly so, it's we've we've got a lot of. It. There's a lot of really prominent examples to mine from, and she really comes to. I'm not sure if I 100% agree with that, but she really comes to like this, there's only two ways that a woman can kind of really be considered monstrous within our society. There's a myriad of ways that men can be monstrous, but Mm -hmm. we really only punish or like say women cross that line in two ways. And it's when you abandon your child and it is the angry, like angry, mad woman. like
0: the um, unwillingness to be contained
1: right um but she like and she references she gives examples of these um for both of them for the for the one for the mother abandoning the child it's doris lessing and Joni mitchell um and then for the kind of angry uncontained woman it's valerie Solanus and sylvia Platt. so these these and these aren't the only women she discusses she also devotes a chapter earlier on to jk rowling um but uh, and yeah, I know you have thoughts on that before well, we kind of come back. Well,
0: because this. I'm not, because I'm not sure that she really does. She almost she mentions J.K. Rowling as though she almost has to, but then but then she quickly like she doesn't dive nearly as deep into that version of of the problematic monstrous woman as she should. It's it's not that she f- forgives or seems to to excuse Rawlings' behavior, but she also doesn't dig into it as deeply as she does these other two types of women, right? The the abandoning mother. And she doesn't use this phrase, but really it's like the female grotesque, right? Where the grotesque mm. is that which, which is subversive, that which is beyond the, it is irregular, it is outside of the boundaries that we have confined the sleek woman into. So she doesn't use that phrase, but that is kind of what she means. Um, I guess and th- those are her Rawlings. two things
1: plays into that conversation in a really interesting way that I wish maybe she had gone to more explicitly because she mentions JK Rowling in essence because of her gender essentialism and kind of yes. her being tied up in that and so I think that might have actually been really interesting this woman who is arguing for pure a purity of womanhood gender essentialism against these other ideas of a
0: monstrous woman it is a, yes it's actually because is kind
1: of, I not thought about that
0: because there's a couple things that are kind of intriguing there there's first this idea that like the number of people who not just allow but actively endorse the oppression of themselves and and for, for any anyone who has ever faced oppression which as a woman and as someone who was poor for such a huge period of her time Rawling definitely has same with you know she doesn't really talk about the blackness of Miles Davis although she does talk about the fact that the main scholar she's looking at is a, is a black woman who's situating it herself, and that's that's right, right Dieter should not be having that conversation. She should correctly turn us to someone who can. but this conversation about the fact that that we are systematically oppressing allowing ourselves to be oppressed and continuing the system, right just like I always think about the fact that female circumcision is perpetuated by the women, right It is perpetuated by the mothers, not the fathers. So I really wanted her to dig into that more. This this idea that you know she as a woman did this, but also like you said, while she is not being blamed for being for having abandoned her biological children, there is an implicit, if not sometimes explicit, narrative there that she is the mother of of Potterheads, right? That she she created a family and she said all of you were welcome. This is a family where everyone belongs. Except for, it turns out, several of you. And how much of of that idea of that that narrative of family and belonging is centered on Rawling being a woman and a woman's, quote, job being to be caring and nurturing so that that narrative is one that can only be maybe people were only as upset as they were, not just because what she did was deplorable, but because they expected more from a woman who should be inherently welcoming and motherly. So I wish she yeah. would have tied it in more to those chapters instead of having it almost be this weird outlier. Because I yeah. wanted more discussion about that.
1: Yeah, I do feel it was weird that she didn't engage. I thought she might have come back to J.K. Rowling in those Me later too. sections, but it's not. It it doesn't happen. And so, hey, maybe it's a maybe that's the subject of a follow up. Uh, yes, or something or someone else out there could pen that scholarship because I think it's a conversation worth continuing and having that is introduced at the very yes. least in this text.
0: And I I know that part of part of her larger exploration is who traditionally is allowed to be monstrous. And so the folks that are are these men that everyone sort of knows, right? Hemingway, Casso are pretty much household names, even if you're not a yeah. literary or artistic family. The people she's looking at in her chapters on on women other than J.K. Rowling, so other than Joni Mitchell, who who has a really sort of intense following and you might know her. People like Anne Sexton and Doris Lessing and Virginia Woolf is is a little further out, but like Virginia Woolf still requires you to have some sophisticated understanding of literature and Sylvia Plath, like her examples are harder to resonate with because yeah. I'm not sure people are sitting with like, should I keep reading A Bell Jar? I don't know. In the way that they are, should I keep listening to Jackson 5, right? Like there's a huge, there's a much, there's a really big difference there at play. It's worth thinking about.
1: And I guess she does kind of mention that she is kind of grasping because so much of our idea of monster is tied up in masculinity. And so, and I, I guess that is also maybe a sub-conversation worth having of, like, who gets, who is, who gets to be monstrous and who get slash, how do you, who gets to label monsters? I don't, I don't know.
0: It's a, yeah so that's
1: interesting for sure.
0: I found myself hoping, but. But I'm not sure the timeline would have worked because I I know when the book came out, I'm not sure when she was writing the majority of it. But I, I found myself hoping that she would turn to Joss Whedon at some point, in part because that's someone I think about a lot, having edited a book that was on trauma and memory, that we started the book before it ter- it came out, just what a monster Whedon was, and that we had to keep editing this book post, post-declarations. But I I think about it a lot because of this issue that you're talking about about feminism versus not because unlike Hemingway or Picasso that sort of marketed themselves as clearly not feminist as like women are meant to be used. Here are my 17 examples. You know, Whedon crafted a world that was centered on strong female characters. Everything he did had that at its heart and it was called the Whedonverse. And so something you said at the very, very beginning of our discussion was that much of this task text is asking us to consider whether or not these folks deserve to be at the center and joss whedon and the whedonverse they have stripped that term they now call it sometimes the buffy verse even though it's it includes texts that that don't have anything to do with buffy the vampire slayer because increasingly they're like yeah but let's talk about all the women who were writers directors executive producers and actors that made that show made those shows possible and yes Whedon clearly was not her, he clearly had an impact, but so did Nixon, who was on, who was the executive producer and wrote some of the best episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, let's talk about Charisma Carpenter, who was, who could, you know, and and some of these people, as well as Joss Whedon's wife, who, if ever we have an example of someone needing a wife, right, like, I mean, he, she, she helped make sure that he could do the things he did. And then she walked out with complex PTSD and I, I guess I, but I needed that because I needed her again. I needed Dieter to to solve it for me and to solve it by telling me what she told, tells us all at the end, which is it's up to you, right? And there may be some lines you're not willing to cross, some stains you can't look past and that's okay. But you have to choose to be okay with that or not. And I think
1: I had read some criticism of the book that was like, ah, I feel she introduces everything. and then. Rather than come to any conclusion, she just throws her hands up at the end and says, just mm. figure it out for yourself. I don't think that's what she's doing. I think that's a, a really simplistic way to read the ending. I think it's that she's giving you a lot of different frameworks with when now you can take and use in your own world. She's not telling you, yes. rather than telling, rather than, I think. Try to as she she spends the whole book arguing against objectivity and one like one size fits all. So rather exactly. than trying to give you a one size fits all at the end, that would completely undermine the entire the entire crutch of the book. I I think she does it handles it with a lot more depth, and she says, yeah, you it may be harder, but you have to choose your own adventure.
0: And I think the reason I don't have a problem with that because you know how I feel when artists are like, which ending do you think is right? Is because you can read the anguish at her having to leave us at that conclusion she wants an answer for herself she wants to be able to know if it's okay to keep liking woody allen and roman polanski and she has to end with this uncomfortable sensation that it's going to depend she has to make those own lines and what a brave stance to be like i too am uncomfortable that's a really powerful place to be Thank you so much for joining us for our conversation. We cannot recommend highly enough that you pick up this book by Claire Dieter and that you read it yourself, that you allow yourself to wrestle with these really tricksy questions, because undoubtedly there will be a moment, if not many moments like there were for Tony and I, where you're going to hear your own voice or sometimes a thought that you didn't even know you needed to have that suddenly you can't escape. And it's just a fantastic book. And it's really, I think, relevant for people. Who also are, are fans of horror because that's so much of the baggage, right? It starts there with Roman Polanski. We're going to make a p- a big pivot uh, from having this really theoretical co- conversation <laughs> to continuing our conversation of the Friday the Thirteenth franchise. All of whom also think that they're geniuses, right? So that's there's right. our connection, but. Tony, what film is next? It
1: almost feels sacrilegious, but we're, we are going to be talking, um, we're going, we're going to go back to the Friday the 13th franchise to talk about 2001's Jason X, also known as Jason in
0: Space. (laughs) So I have seen this one, but I saw it back in, like, the early 2000s. I think this is one of the first Friday the 13th I've, I've saw. I'm, I'm excited to see what happens (laughs) in my repeat viewing of it but i do think you're right sacrilegious might be as close of a word as we can get to (laughs) but that's what this podcast is about exposing us to things we didn't know we were going to get to see so please watch that film and quick shout out to jackson o'brien who makes all of our dreams come true by doing phenomenal editing thank you so much jackson and to all of you thank you for listening to our nightmares and have a spooktacular day